fun thing to do. Uh, I read to you earlier out of Romans chapter 10 for our scripture reading. And Josh referenced this in his prayer as well, but to repeat these words from the Apostle Paul, he says, But how are they to call on whom in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? So I grew up with Todd. I don't know that he has beautiful feet. Uh, Our family has stubby feet. But uh, metaphorically speaking, I'm so thankful and proud of my brother and for what God is doing in his life. He and his wife and now five children uh, moved out to Colorado, I think in 2009, is that right? To plant a church in the Denver metro area. And now God has been directing them over the past couple of years and orienting their hearts toward his mission to take them to southern France and then incursions into North Africa to get the gospel to those who have not heard there. Marseille, I'm sure Todd will talk about this, the city to which they are appointed is set to become, I believe, the first European city that has a majority Muslim population. And so that is where God is directing them. And so we are here today to hear from him and to hear what God is directing them to do. He'll share a bit about their ministry plans and then we'll preach to us from Matthew chapter 10. Uh, He'll come in just a moment. Uh, he looks a lot like me. I'm older by a couple years, so I can say that. But he's always been the better version of me. Uh, he was always smarter. Um, he was always a better athlete. He was always more well-behaved. My parents liked him better, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so in some ways, I feel like I've always lived a bit in, in his shadow, and I'm happy about that. God has blessed him and gifted him, and I love him very much. So, Todd, why don't you come and share with us what God's doing and then teach us from God's Word. I'm going to go ahead and change the slides over for you, okay? All right, well, it's really nice to be with you all this morning. Um, Been obviously hearing about what God's been doing at North Point for years, and I think I was probably at a service back within the first year or so. Um, that the church had started, and then we moved to Colorado, and so Sundays was kind of like a need to get back to Colorado by by Sunday kind of thing, and so um, haven't been here until um, the Sunday after New Year's, and so um, it's this is one of the my favorite parts of this phase of our lives that God has us in now is this opportunity to meet with other brothers and sisters in Christ and other church bodies and to see all the good things and exciting things that God is doing. And um, it's just expanding my vision of the work that God is doing in hundreds and thousands and millions of people um, that I don't even know, most of them, but I get a little taste with some of them, and I get a little taste with certain church bodies, and um, it's just, it thrills my heart um, because God is doing really awesome things to um, further his glory through Jesus Christ in the lives of his people. And so it's a real, um, seriously a real joy for me to be with you all. And um, my brother has spoken kind words. And um, one of the things he said was that I was the more well-behaved version. And it was just because most of you didn't know Lee when he was younger, but um, he got in a decent bit of trouble. And um, I was just smart enough to watch what happened and think, I don't want that to happen to me. And so (laughs) I was not externally rebellious. And so as I grew into my teenage years, I got to learn the the internal rebellion kind of stuff that goes along with well-behaved kids. Maybe some of you um, know that or be on the lookout for that in your kids, that just because they're behaving well on the outside doesn't mean that there's not uh, pride and sin going on in the heart. And um, Lee's been very much a, um, one of the most important individuals in my life in growing as a disciple of Christ. And um, so I'm, I'm grateful for what God has done in his life and what God is using him and the other elders here to do in this church. And just humbled and thankful to be with you all today. 
I want to tell you about how God has led us to um, pursue this mission in Marseille and what it is that we think he's leading us to do. And I think I'm going to kind of scoot over here so I can have out of my peripheral um, what's going on back here. Um, just going to kind of take you through how it is that God, um, just to give a little personal story of our salvation, that of myself and my wife, Carissa, who I wish was here. You would like her more than you like me. Um, maybe some of you met her whenever we were here earlier in the month. Um, but anyway, just how he's called us to himself and called us into mission and specifically then to Marseille. So um, if they were here, that's... I don't know how well you can see that, but that's what they look like. Uh, if you want to see a picture, I'll have, I have one that you can look at. But anyway, um, my wife, Carissa, her, so I think a lot of you know that, um, that our father was a pastor of a church in the Cincinnati area for over 40 years. And so um, I've heard the gospel from the time that I can remember anything and um, responded to it as a young boy and um, remember being baptized, don't remember when I first called on Christ, which became a, a point of struggle for a number of years as a teenager and into college until the Lord really settled in my heart that the only reason I was believing and repenting was because he had worked that in my heart, and so I needed to stop looking at how good my faith was and how good my repentance was. Um, my wife, Carissa, her father is a pastor as well. He actually pastors a church on the campus um, here in the Columbus area. He didn't used to, but he has for the last eight or nine years, whatever that is. And um, so she similarly has heard the gospel from the time that she can remember and um, does remember as a young child calling on Christ and never doubting that he had saved her from that point forward. And it's um, a real privilege now as parents for us to take the experiences that we've had in growing up in Christian, uh, Christian families, which is this incredible privilege and blessing, and to know a little bit Am I causing that to happen? Okay. How am I doing that? I'll try not to. I'll try to be still. Wow. What am I doing? Um, what I was saying was, um, growing up in Christian families and, and, and understanding the challenges that, that go along with that for kids to let their faith be their own and um, for it not to be something that's been forced upon them by parents or other family members and so we've been really careful about how we've sought to um, give the gospel to our kids and really wanted them to um, seek us out to, for them to call on Christ to save them. And each of them has. And we're obviously really grateful for that and also feel the responsibility very much upon ourselves to help them as they're maturing to see the fruit and evidences of faith and repentance in their lives. Um, but it's just, it's really cool to have, um, to have them in this mission with us, not just because they're being forced into it, but because Christ is calling them into it as well. Anyway, that's a little bit on just my family. Um, the oldest, by the way, he's 11, that's Brody. Um, next oldest is Rafe, he's eight. They're both here with me this morning. And then the younger three are with my wife in South Carolina right now. Um, that's Basil, he's seven. Riggs is also seven. Um, Basil will be eight next week. They are from uh, Uganda, and they've been with us for a little over three years now. And then Genevieve is our little six-year-old girl. Um, along with the emphasis that I received on just very simple gospel understanding as a kid, there was also in our church a big emphasis on international missions. And so I was around those who were involved in that work a lot as a teenager, started to become more attracted to that and excited about it, especially like in the mid-90s whenever people were rushing into Eastern Europe after the Soviet Union had kind of um, crumbled a bit, and people were going in with the gospel freely for the first time in decades. And even as a young teenager, that was a really compelling thought to me, that there are people who have much less access to the gospel than we enjoy here in America, and particularly where I grew up in the Midwest, and was really gripped by that. And went to college thinking that God was leading me um, to jump into that, into international missions. And while I was in college, 
um, in Bible college, there was a very heavy emphasis on the need for church planting, not just overseas, but right here in our own country. And in particular, there was a strong emphasis um, that I was hearing on the western part of the United States. And so um, I thought, okay, apparently God wants me to do this missions thing, but just here in the U.S. instead of in another country. And so through a very circuitous route, um, which included me meeting my wife and, um, and her coming into how God was leading us, we ended up not in California, but in Colorado to plant a church back in 2009. Um, it's Redeemer Bible Church. Brighton is a city um, just kind of northeast of Denver, about 20 to 25 miles. We went there in 2009 and um, had our first service in January of 2010, so the church has been meeting publicly for about eight years now. And um, there's so much that we needed to learn that we didn't know we necessarily needed to learn when we went there, which is, uh, I think that's typically how God leads us. Um, there's something in front of us that we go to and we get into it, and then we learn that there's so much we need to learn for that thing that he teaches us um, through the process of engaging it. And that's very much our experience at um, Redeemer in Brighton. The things that we were already very committed to um, as a church body and as a group of leaders was solid biblical teaching, which is something that we sought to do as a church, building our church and what we do and what we believe on the scriptures themselves. Um, seeking to give ourselves to discipleship of people, not just teaching them publicly, but teaching them privately, trying to bring them along in their relationship with Christ, and specifically focusing on doing that with leaders, those who would serve as elders in the church. And these were things that I knew were important, but wouldn't realize just how important until years down the road when God started to lead us towards what we're doing now. One of the things we've really been, we had really been just kind of continually praying about, talking about, and seeking after was how to be very faithful with the mission of the gospel in our community, particularly coming from the outside, not having a lot of roots in the community, and just trying to figure out how do we do that with the people here. And a lot of the people that God was bringing to us were people who had not, didn't have a lot of roots in the community as well, going back very long, because Brighton's kind of this older agricultural community that's turning into a bedroom community for Denver. And so the people live here, but they work, they sleep here, but they work and play and all that kind of stuff elsewhere. And the agricultural community is kind of like out there on its own, not especially welcoming to the newcomers and just really difficult for us to figure out how to make those connections. And over the years, what was becoming really apparent to us, especially within the last couple of years, was how vital it was to take the people that God was bringing to us into get them mobilized into the gospel opportunities all around us where God had placed us, where we meet in Brighton, where we lived, and, and those kinds of things. And so that was a major thing that God was teaching us, again, that we feel like was very important for what we were doing, but also preparing us for what he's leading us to do now. And when God started putting on our hearts that he was... He was giving us this greater sense of his leading and a desire to get involved more directly in international mission work, and we began to pursue transition of leadership at our church. We, we realized just how important it was that there were qualified and trained men who could take over the role that I was doing as our lead pastor and just keep things moving forward without any trouble. And that became something that just really confirmed for me the, the real importance of training um, godly men to be leading our churches. Over a couple of years, really, going back over two years now for us, um, God was beginning to stir my heart and Carissa's heart towards the possibility of not of transitioning the leadership at Redeemer, which wasn't something that I had thought we were going to do when we went there. I kind of thought we'd be there for decades, and for whatever reason, um, God, that wasn't God's plan for us, and we started to realize that over the years, and as he was burdening our hearts more with the opportunity to be involved somehow with our gifts in advancing the gospel to less reached and unreached peoples, and specifically, he was burdening our hearts with working with Muslims, and particularly North African Muslims, 
and also with this particular interest in the strategic opportunity of getting involved in university ministry. And so these were things that over the years as we were talking and praying, God was beginning to form in our minds and hearts and directing us towards like North Africa or Turkey or Southern Europe, um, that part of the world. And so we started kind of talking to people who were involved in mission work, and just nothing was coming together until we talked with a friend who works with Campus Crusade and shared these interests of ours, including just the makeup of our family, which was an interesting piece in God's direction of him to suggest to us Marseille, France, because he has been working for a number of years in like Central and Eastern Europe, and he was saying, with the makeup of your family, having two, um, two boys from Africa, you'd have a harder time fitting into the culture of Eastern Europe and even Central Europe than you would in a place like Marseille, France, which he knew also had a very large university that Campus Crusade had tried to get some things going in without a whole lot of success. And so he just mentioned that and it was just barely interesting enough to me and Carissa to begin researching it, which we started doing. And this is what we learned about the city. Here's a map that maybe you can see. That's France, and down on the southeast coast is where Marseille is. If you kind of back out from it, you can see across the Mediterranean is North Africa, and very directly across the, north, uh, the, the Mediterranean is Algeria, just about 450 miles away. And its geographic um, location has influenced the kind of city it's become. It's just kind of a hub. It's a harbor, a port within the Mediterranean world up into Europe. It's France's oldest city. That's not something I knew. He mentioned Marseille. I'd heard of it. I knew nothing about it. Um, learned as we began researching that it was founded in about 600 B.C. So it's 2,600 years old. was founded by the Greeks as a port for that part of, um, they didn't call it Europe back then, whatever they called it, um, became an important port in the Roman Empire as well. And because of this, um, lots of traffic going in and out of Marseille, and therefore it's become this uh, multicultural and very Mediterranean city, and also a haven for a lot of marginalized and suffering people, including people from Armenia who had been persecuted in Turkey, including a large population of Jews, one of the largest populations of Jews throughout Europe, um, just because they've come to this city for safety and for better economic opportunities. It's also France's second largest city, something I didn't know either. About 850,000 people in the city itself, about 1.6 million in the larger metropolitan area. And um, if you have heard much about France, a lot of people um, who are involved in mission work with France will suggest that the population of France is just about 1% evangelical. Um, and so that would likely apply in close plus or minus range to Marseille as well. So a very large city with a very small number of gospel-believing um, Christians. Historically, Protestants in France have been a very embattled minority. The Catholic Church has been very dominant in France. And so because of that, the Protestant Church and the Evangelical Church, which is even smaller, has been something of j just hang their mindset has been kind of hanging on rather than really especially reaching out. And a lot of that's beginning to change, which is, which is encouraging, but that just gives you a little bit of the historical feel of how the church there has been reaching out into the gospel need in the country and in the city. Um, it's kind of like the anti-Paris. I was at a um, church in Colorado last, um, I guess, few weeks ago, and uh, there was a guy visiting um, at the church who's from Paris, and um, he, was, uh, he was telling the person who was hosting him how much he doesn't like Marseille. Um, it, it's kind of, it doesn't have a lot of the, the cultural refinements that you tend to think of with a city like Paris, even though that's a bit of, um, a, bit of a fable. There are certainly parts of Paris that are rather um, dirty and run down as well. But another piece of this that's contributed to it is the very large number of immigrants in the city, especially in the northern part of the city, and particularly from North Africa. And 
even though France gives off the idea that it's a very inclusive culture, the reality is the same in France as it is in parts of our own country, that these newcomers are not just very easily welcomed. Even if they're second, third, fourth generation immigrants, there is definitely a segregation in the city that even exists within churches. You don't see very many churches in Marseille that are multicultural, representing people from of a more French ethnicity combined with those from Muslim backgrounds together in the same church, which is just expressing to you some of the need that exists in this city um, for the church to be engaged in this opportunity. It's likely to become France's first majority Muslim city in the, in the near future. It's referred to um, by those there as Algeria's 49th district. There are 48 districts in Algeria, and there are so many people of Algerian descent in Marseille that it's referred to this way. Very close connections to Algeria. There's a ferry that goes back and forth between um, Marseille and Algiers two or three times a week. It's just about 450 miles, and the ferry trip is under a day. And you see this just going back and forth quite a bit. And we were just really drawn by the opportunity that a city like this presents because it's hard to get into the countries of North Africa, particularly Morocco and Algeria and Tunisia, which we had not thought about before, but it makes so much sense to us now. We're former French colonies. And so France is this doorstep into ministry in North Africa with the Muslims who are there. And in Algeria, there are 40 people groups, and if this language is probably familiar to um, some of you at least, these who are kind of have a distinctive um, ethnic identity, there are 40 of them identified in Algeria, and only four of those are considered reached. And that's typically viewed as having at least 2% of a group of, of a people group who's following Christ. And the four that are considered reach are Egyptians living in Algeria, people from England living in Algeria, people from Spain living in Algeria, and people from France li living in Algeria. All of the ethnic Algerians um, are considered unreached people groups at this point. And Marseille is this very international gateway kind of city into a country like this and into this incredible need of the people for the gospel of Christ. And an example of that comes, has come to me from a, 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 someone who's become a friend who's working in, uh, in Marseille with his family who shared during the month of Ramadan, during a um, time in which he was sending out prayer requests throughout every day of Ramadan, shared the story of a, an encounter they had with an individual who's from Morocco who didn't speak a lot of French, and he and a co-worker um, were trying to reach out to this, um, this guy from Morocco and having difficulty communicating with him. And while they're engaged in this conversation, up walked another guy who was from Algeria. And it turned out that these two guys were from, like, eastern Morocco and western Algeria, so not super far from each other. And so their dialects were close enough to where they were able to communicate and the guy from Algeria was translating for this missionary, these missionaries um, to this guy from Morocco. And um, out of this, the guy from Algeria ended up kind of sharing his heart with um, these, these brothers and said that he's been looking for a job for all this time and was not able to find one. So they said, we will pray for you. The next day, he called them up and said, you'll never believe this. I got a job. And so something about you guys I'm really interested in, and could I join up with your discovery um, Bible study group? That's just like one example of the opportunities that exist in a city like this, to have a guy from Algeria and a guy from Morocco engaged in a conversation with these believers into this opportunity for sharing the gospel really clearly with them. And that's something that just really excites us. Um, uh, Marseille also has a very large University, about 70,000 students, 10,000 of whom are international students, and not a lot of work going on um, by Christian groups in the university, although there is some. And 
we're particularly drawn to this strategic opportunity because you have people coming into the university and going back out every three to four years or so um, who will not be staying in Marseille or won't be staying in France, at least some of them. And it's this just awesome opportunity we perceive to engage these people, seek to make disciples of them, and to train them and see God send them back into these countries where it's very hard for us to go and where they'll do a better job than we would anyway. And so these are the things that we were learning about Marseille, and as we were learning this, it was just very much resonating with our hearts and what God had put on them. And so we concluded, God's leading us into this. We are very convinced of that. A little bit just about what it is that we are planning to do then in Marseille. Um, First of all, just very simply, our mission is just taking the mission that I believe all Christians have, and that is to make disciples and be disciples through the gospel and applying it to this particular place, Marseille and beyond, especially into North Africa. That's what we view our mission to be. And in terms of how we think that we'll go about that, our strategy, I don't, you can't really see this very well, Um, our vision is to see disciples made among the people of Marseille, particularly Muslims and university students, and then into North Africa with indigenous churches, that is, they're being led by the people from those places, in multi-ethnic churches where you see people of French ethnicity with those from Muslim backgrounds in one church, and seeing those people who are part of those churches mobilized into gospel mission because of the vast need and the exciting opportunity that exists in a city like Marseille. There are believers there, and some of them are engaging in this work, but they need so much more help um, to really get mobilized through discipleship into this incredible opportunity for advancing the gospel to these unreached peoples. That's really what our vision is for what God is sending us to do. Um, Our strategy, again, I don't don't even know why I'm doing this at this point. You can't see anything, so you can stop looking at that, I guess. Um, Is, first of all, the the, the primary thing we've got to do initially is get there and learn the language, learn the culture, learn the church ministry that's going on there. And we're viewing that as the first one and a half to two years that we'll be in Marseille. And the language training is just going to take us that long, and it's also going to be an opportunity for us to make these connections and learn these things so that we can um, figure out how to get underneath and behind the French believers to be able to support them and strengthen them into this mission in their city and working alongside of them and working um, with them. The second piece, once we've gone through that phase of just learning the language and learning these things, is engaging ourselves into these ministry opportunities in Marseille. And that is particularly reaching out to the Muslims who are living in the city and also getting involved in advancing the work that's going on in the university. And so really engaging in this, and we know some people who are doing some of this work already that we can come alongside of and learn from them and strengthen what they're doing and expand what they're doing. And so that's what we're viewing as the first thing that we really dive into, is how do we reach out with the gospel into these needy peoples in this city. But then we're very focused on not just leaving it out there, kind of outside of the church, but making the important connection between that work back into the church and also getting the people who are part of these churches engaged into that mission with us. We feel like that is a um, just philosophically, biblically, an important piece of mission and something that's, that needs additional help and focus in Marseille and something that we feel particularly equipped of the Lord to jump in there and try to help with. Though we know it's going to be difficult to gain the credibility that we need to be able to work with the French church to do that. And whenever we share this with people who are working in Marseille, whether they're Americans or they're French people, they're all saying, yes, 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 that's, that's what we need. Because they've seen Americans come over to Marseille and kind of do their own thing and not really integrate with the French church and not last and not make much of an impact. And so they're appreciating that we're seeking to get in and to work with them and support them and help them, but it's going to be a difficult um, journey to gain the just trust of the people to do that kind of work with them. But that's something we're really focused on. 
Beyond that, then, is what we hope to see happen into North Africa. There are a lot of connections between Marseille and um, North Africa, particularly Algeria. And um, very hopeful, uh, um, with good reason to be hopeful, that there will be opportunity to make trips into North Africa to do pastoral training and to strengthen them so that this cause of advancing the gospel to these unreached peoples is advanced in another way. And that is through supporting those who live in that area and work in that area and are from that area. And there's one final piece of our vision that's even longer term beyond that. And that is to be able to minister to other cross-cultural gospel workers who are working in the area and who have to come out of their countries for visa renewals or just for retreat or counseling or discipleship or, or whatever it is, um, which we have seen in the region is a real thing. We have friends who are working in nor- one of the countries in North Africa, and particularly during their first couple of years, they had to leave the country every like three months or so um, because of visa renewal issues. And even still, they leave the country once or twice a year just for retreat because of the difficulty of living and ministering where they do. And we thought... This is another opportunity to advance the gospel in this place by strengthening other cross-cultural workers who are embedded in these places. And so that's the long-term um, vision. I'm going to skip over these, this timeline because you can't see it anyway, and I've basically um, gone over that with you. Um, just want to share a little bit about who we're partnering with in this work. You don't see that very well, but um, Reaching and Teaching International Ministries is a, a mission agency that's out of Louisville, Kentucky. It was started by um, Dr. David Sills, who's a professor of missions at Southern Seminary and um, who was formerly a missionary and um, seminary missionary kind of in Ecuador. And he was just seeing the real need in the um, missional work around the globe, not only to be going in in the first generation and spreading the gospel widely, but staying into the next generation to be making sure that the pastors who were leading those churches were properly equipped and trained to be able to keep their doctrine pure so that the gospel would continue on into future generations. And God providentially connected us to this agency, and we were really looking for an agency that philosophically fit with where we were headed, and we're really grateful um, to have something that fits very well with what we think God is leading us to do. Very excited that our sending church is going to be um, the church that we were able to be part of planting in um, Brighton. So Redeemer Bible Church in Brighton is our sending church. And from our church, two of our, um, two of our friends and families are coming with us into this work. Ryan and Danielle Fisher are longtime friends of ours who went with us to Colorado to help start the church. He served as an elder um, at our church. Then Jake and Rachel Truman are a young couple um, that God has also been stirring in towards this kind of work. And God just led us all together kind of at the same time as he was stirring in our hearts in various ways um, towards this same kind of focus. And so we're really excited to have these two families with us in the work, which enables us to have a little bit more expanded vision, we believe. And then obviously I'm in a phase right now of seeking partners with churches and individuals um, to get in behind us and underneath us with prayer. We very firmly believe this and are learning it more and more that the main thing we need to get to Marseille and be successful in Marseille is not just money, it's God. And God in his mysterious ways uses the prayers of his people and so we're incredibly appreciative of those who are keeping up with what's going on in our lives and praying for us and we do need financial partners in churches and individuals and so that's a big piece of what I'm doing now is just going and sharing the, the vision that God has given to us and inviting people to partner with that if that is what God is leading them to do. Will you turn with me please to Matthew 10? I'm going to try to hurry through a um, short look into this portion of scripture to encourage you in how you can be involved in God's mission of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. This is a passage that's been very gripping in my life over the last couple of years and increasingly so. I think that the mission of all of God's people is to be and make disciples by the gospel for the glory of God. 
think it's a mission that every one of us shares. And that's strongly shaped in my mind by the phrase that comes at the very end of this gospel where Jesus tells his disciples to, because all authority has been given to him everywhere, to go everywhere and make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, to teach them to observe all that he's commanded with the promise that he's with us um, to the end of the age. I believe that's just a, a very helpful expression of what the mission of God's people is, and that is to be and make disciples through the gospel to the glory of God. It's a very fitting end to Matthew's gospel. Uh, Matthew's gospel really focuses on presenting Jesus as the promised Messiah. If you read through it, you'll see how often he's referring back to Old Testament promises to show that Jesus is the Christ. He's the one who was sent by God to bring the kingdom of God by his life in the flesh, his teaching, his ministry, but particularly his death on the cross and his resurrection. Jesus was a missionary because he was sent. Perhaps you know that the word missionary comes from the Latin root um, for to send. Jesus was sent by God as the Messiah to bring the kingdom of God through the gospel. And throughout Matthew, we see him gathering disciples into his kingdom and then sending them out on mission as well. And these disciples that we know of, the 12 disciples, I think are not just to be viewed by us as a certain select category of super-Christians, but rather they are intended in Matthew's gospel to be the example for us of what disciples do. And we are all disciples. And there's this special passage right here in the heart of Matthew with lessons from Jesus himself on gospel mission, addressing things in our hearts that keep us from gospel mission, and giving us the promises we need to have the courage to go forward in obeying him in this work. And all this begins with a summary of Jesus' ministry. If you look with me at chapter 9, verse 35, where it tells us that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. This is something of a summary statement of what you've been reading about um, in Matthew up to this point. Jesus has been traveling around, he's been preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and he's been doing these miracles to prove that he is the Messiah. This is expressed to be very much arising out of Jesus' heart as we look at verse 36 where it says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. As Jesus was traveling around and engaging with the people throughout the land of Judea, this is what he was seeing. These, are like, these, are, these people are like sheep who have no shepherd. And he is the shepherd who had come to lead them to God, to save them, to restore them, to find them. And he had compassion on them, which is a word that's used several times in Matthew to express Jesus' response to the needs that he was feeling around him. And I think it's worth just pausing briefly to hit on this because I think that one of the things in my own heart that I see keeps me from engaging in the mission of the gospel all too often is just indifference. That I can be out in my life with my nose so buried into my responsibilities that I don't notice the multitudes around me who are like sheep without a shepherd. Knowing, as you and I know, that Jesus is the shepherd to save them. We need for his heart towards these people to be implanted in us, which we have. We have the mind of Christ. We need this mind filling up our thoughts. We need his compassion filling up our hearts to, to drive us into this mission. I think for a lot of us, it's there. We see the people around us, their need for Christ. We care about it. And there are other things that keep us from involving ourselves as we ought to in the mission of the gospel, particularly fear, especially also busyness. And the things that Jesus goes on to say in chapter 10, I think, address that very, that those very issues. We see Jesus' perspective in verse 37. As he looked at the multitudes, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So as he saw these crowds around him, this is how he saw them. There's a plentiful harvest here, but there is a need for more laborers. 
And so this is what he said in verse 38 to his disciples. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Again, here's that word, sending out, or missio is the root in Latin. So Jesus is telling his disciples to pray for missionaries. As they see the multitudes around them, this is to be their response as well. There's a harvest here, there's a need for more workers, and so they were to pray to the Father that he would send out those workers. And here is where we get a first lesson on gospel mission from Jesus, and that's just number one. If you want to take notes, I've got eight of these. Number one, I'm going to move through them quickly, I promise. Number one, pray to God to send out gospel workers. That's what Jesus taught his disciples to do here. This is part of God's sovereign plan through prayer to advance his kingdom. I don't know how to explain all of that. I view God as sovereign over the whole enterprise of the gospel mission to the ends of the earth. And yet somehow, in some mysterious way, and in some great privilege, he invites us into that work. And he really does use our prayers to advance his sovereign plan. In other words, it really matters that we pray for this. There is a harvest that's plentiful, and in some sense, our prayer to the Father to send out laborers is used by the Father to send out laborers. This is one of the easiest ways that we can engage in His mission, and frankly, something that all Christians should be doing. And yet, I know in my own heart the tendency just to get caught up in all the other things, and for my passion just to pray for the advance of the gospel to be very weak something that God calls us to do and that Jesus instructs us to do here. And the reason has already been given, and that is that there is a plentiful harvest with few laborers. And in this mysterious way, prayer addresses that gap between the plentiful harvest and the few laborers. And as I'm giving these lessons from Jesus, I want you not only to hear what he's teaching his disciples to do, pray to God to send out gospel workers, but also the reason underneath that, because the reasons underneath that are what empower their obedience to his commands. There is this plentiful harvest with few laborers, and prayer addresses this need. So he told his disciples to pray for this, and as we keep reading, we end up seeing that they were part of the answer to this prayer. Look with me at chapter 10, verse 1. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. It's not on mistake that Matthew has included this right after what he's just written at the end of chapter 9. He's connecting that prayer for more laborers to Jesus' own calling of his disciples to be among those laborers whom he had empowered for the mission into which he was calling them. In verse 5, you see where it reads that these 12, Jesus sent out, there's that word sent out again, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. Just stop briefly there before we jump into some of those instructions. But second lesson just to see is to be willing to be sent out as a gospel worker. Be willing to be sent out as a gospel worker. As you're praying for God to send others, be willing for him to send you. Now, the apostles definitely had a special role. In, um, in Jesus' economy of advancing his gospel into new places, he chose these 12 apostles. They were specially empowered. They had a specific mission here. But not only are they apostles, but again here they are referred to as disciples, which if you read especially through the book of Acts, which Lee's preaching to you on Sunday mornings, you will see that word used repeatedly just to refer to the Christians. In fact, when we see them first called Christians, it tells us that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. In other words, to be a Christian is to be a disciple. These disciples are the example for us of what it looks like to follow Christ. That includes a willingness to be sent out as his gospel workers. And what is the reason for this? The reason for this is just part of our identity. Jesus was making disciples, and so if we are following him as disciples, then we will necessarily be doing the same thing, and that is making more disciples. It's part of the identity of a disciple to make more disciples. So pray for God to make it clear to you where and how you are to serve in this harvest because you have a place, and be willing to go. 
There are great needs and opportunities all over the world, including in places like Marseille, and also be willing to stay. There are incredible needs and opportunities right here. Columbus has the world coming to it as well. Unreached peoples coming to this city. The opportunity to engage them with the gospel exists right here. Be willing to stay here on mission for the sake of Christ. It's just a matter of where does he want you engaged in this effort. This is one of the things I've been absolutely loving in meeting with people and being at other churches is getting to see the various ways in which God is calling different people to be involved in glorifying him to the ends of the earth by being involved in their vocation for the sake of the gospel. It's particularly exciting to me to meet with a very successful um, man who's involved in real estate and God has blessed him financially, and it is hugely on his heart to use those blessings to be involved in advancing the gospel as far as he can. Or to find a, a, a widowed woman in the church that we're attending in South Carolina who is just on mission in her neighborhood, meeting her neighbors and seeking to give them the gospel. That thrills my heart. I think it's the calling for each of us, that same mission, but in different ways according to God's design in your life. So the question really is, where is he calling me and how is he calling me to engage in this mission? Perhaps it'll help you to um, narrow in on what it is that he wants you to be doing if you'll make a list of some names of people who are in, who are in your life right now who need Christ that you can begin to pray for and even plan for how you're going to give them the gospel. To think of your job, your vocation, as where God wants you involved in his work. Your neighborhood, where he has placed you, with the neighbors around you, as where he wants you to be serving. In other parts of the community that you can step into, particularly needy parts of the community, those perhaps are the places into which God is calling you into this mission work. Jesus gave the twelve here very specific instructions. See that as you read through, beginning in verse 5, all the way down through verse 15. I'm not going to take the time to do that, just to, um, to save a little bit of time here. But if you were to look over these things, I think you would see a third lesson, and that is just to follow your Lord's instructions in your mission. Some of these instructions that Jesus gives here to his disciples are very specific to the mission he had given to them. And we know that because when we read through the book of Acts, they're not following these instructions rigidly. We see them involved in other missions doing different things. So the instructions that Jesus gives to the disciples here are specific to this mission, including things like go to the Jews only, the command for them to perform miracles for which they were given authority and power very specifically at the beginning of this section, to go without sufficient provisions, and to stay with somebody who lived in the town where they went. These are some specific things Jesus told them to do that we see in other missions that they are not necessarily engaging in. But I think there's some principles to take from these instructions. First of all, just to know to whom you're sent. As I was just discussing a moment ago, to be aware of those to whom Christ is sending you to make disciples. Not letting it be just general, like the people out here, but making it specific where you work, individual names, your neighbors, knowing them. Know to whom you're sent. Have an emphasis, as we see here, on giving the gospel verbally as well as showing the gospel by serving people in their needs, something that Jesus lays out for the disciples here. He tells them to preach as well as to perform these miracles to meet the needs of people. I think it's still a principle that's important for us to trust his provision in the mission that we're engaged in. And finally, to make connections. This is something that's emphasized by a lot of people in mission work these days, finding persons of peace when you're trying to engage a new community with the gospel. This is a wise bit of instruction here. If you're trying to get the gospel into new places, to try to make connections with a person of peace who can invite you into that culture and into that community. And what is the reason for all of this, to follow his instructions in our mission? Well, it's simply that our Lord can be trusted and our Lord must be obeyed. On this mission, we are ambassadors of a king, of the Messiah. We can trust 
what he's telling us will be fruitful. We can trust that he will work where he's telling us to work. We can trust that and we must obey where he is leading us individually by his spirit in response to his providence in our lives. If we read on, we see that Jesus is speaking beyond this mission. When we come to verse 16, he says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. These are not things that happened on this specific mission, but these are things that would happen to the disciples down the road. So Jesus was not only speaking to these 12 for this mission, he was speaking beyond them to other disciples for all the other missions that he gives us leads us to a fourth lesson, and that is to be prepared for opposition. Be prepared for opposition. And the reason for this is simply because it will be present. Jesus is very clear about this. He doesn't sugarcoat things. There is opposition when we advance the light into the darkness. And this is where I think Jesus especially starts to address us at a very critical place in our souls. Because we don't particularly welcome this. The idea of being sheep in the midst of wolves is not a particularly thrilling image. We don't like the idea of being tried, being put on trial, being flogged, being beaten. And this is not the experience of most of us. But there are lesser forms of opposition that will exist if we are faithfully advancing the gospel where God has called us. And so we need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We don't have to just go out and seek out suffering. Don't want to bring it on ourselves unwisely or through our own guilt. We do want to be innocent. We do want to be wise. But we are still sheep in the midst of wolves. We don't get to change our, to use this image, our animal identity. There are these wolves around us and we're still sheep. We don't get to become like bears or something that don't have to be threatened by wolves. We're still sheep. We won't be able to avoid all the opposition. If we're faithful in proclaiming and living out the gospel, we will run into it because the darkness does not like when the light begins to invade it and expose it. And this is Jesus' instruction for when his disciples would encounter opposition As we continue on in verse 19, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. I think this is a specific promise to the disciples when they were put on trial, that the Spirit would help them to defend themselves by giving the gospel, but I think there is a more general principle here to embrace, and so number five, don't be anxious about what you are to say. And the reason here is that the Spirit will help you say what He wants you to say. Again, this is stressing our need for dependence as we go out into mission. This doesn't rule out training and preparing ourselves to be able to answer questions that arise. Jesus trained these disciples, but you can't prepare for every possibility. You can't wait until you're fully prepared before you open your mouth to give the gospel to your coworker, worried about what he or she is going to ask you in response. And doesn't this keep us from starting conversations sometimes? That we're afraid they're going to ask us a question we can't answer. This is not a promise from Jesus that there won't be awkwardness. Oftentimes this is what I'm wanting, kind of just waiting for, you know, this the perfect thing to arrive in my head that I can say to make it just this smooth transition to giving the gospel. That usually doesn't exist. It usually requires this awkward statement to turn the conversation from something normal into something more meaningful and spiritual. There may be awkwardness, but that's okay. That's what it's like when you engage people into their very souls, when they're trying to keep you out from there. It's difficult. But there is a promise here that God will help us to say what he wants us to say. And Jesus stays with this theme of opposition throughout the rest of his instructions. The very things I feel like my heart needs to be faithfully involved in this work. And again, he's not making the reality, he's not hiding the reality of what his disciples would face. 
In verse 21, he says, brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. Number six, don't be afraid of those who may oppose you. One reason is given to us in verse 22, and that is the promise of salvation, even if they put you to death. This doesn't mean that persecution can't be fled in certain circumstances. Verses 20, verse 23 indicates that. You can go to the next place, go to the next person, because there's such a vast need that you won't exhaust it all. But the expectation that we should have because we are disciples of Jesus is that we will be maligned, we will be mistreated because He, our Lord, was. Even by our family members. But the instruction here is not to fear. And another reason is given to us in the second part of verse 26. He says, For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. He will exercise justice for us as we wait on Him. But Jesus gets double duty out of this phrase as He goes on into verse 27. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. In other words, we can't hide His message. Let this settle in your heart. These things that Jesus had told his disciples that they could not hide, they have written down so that we know these same things and we cannot hide this message. Jesus comes back to the command not to fear because we need to hear it again. In verse 28, he says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The fear of God is what keeps us from the fear of other people, which looks like reverential obedience. Look at verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who's in heaven but it especially looks here like confident trust. Look at verses 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. There's this two-sided reason here. We don't have to fear others when we fear and trust our God. There's more that I'd like to share with you. I don't want to keep you longer, so let me just give you the final two lessons here. Number seven, give your highest devotion to Jesus. See him referencing this in regard to how we ought to think even about our family members. He says in verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Give your highest devotion to Jesus, and it will melt away the fear of what other people will do to you when you are serving him. And number eight, look to Jesus for your reward and as your reward. Verses 40 through 42, he goes on and says, Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus is our reward. He is our rewarder. And we have the privilege of introducing people to Jesus, to, to God. That's worth whatever opposition may come our way. The promises Jesus gives here may sound a bit direct, kind of addressing those who would help his disciples, even giving them a cup of cold water. These people would receive a reward along with his disciples, the reward of a prophet, the reward of a righteous person. 
This encourages us to help others who are engaged in mission, to help each other as we together are engaged in gospel mission. But it also encourages us individually to look to Jesus as our rewarder and our ultimate reward. The reason here is because Jesus is the greatest possible reward. And this is where I think we start when we feel ourselves indifferent or distracted or too busy or too fearful to engage in gospel mission where God has sent us. This is what inspires faithfulness in gospel mission here in the Columbus area or anywhere in the world is the conviction that Jesus is worth it and the conviction that he is trustworthy. So I urge you to fill your hearts with truths about Jesus that build up this conviction that he's worth it and he's trustworthy. And if you find yourself here not engaging in mission fully because of fear, start here, filling your heart up with the glories of Jesus Christ. Go back to the first nine chapters of Matthew and see the glory of Jesus as the promised Messiah the one who is our representative, the one who overcomes temptation, the authoritative teacher who gives us the glorious truths of the kingdom of God in chapters 5 through 7, the one who's preaching powerfully, the one who's calling disciples to himself, the one who's overcoming disease and who's calming storms. This one is worth it and he's trustworthy. This is the only thing that will be powerful enough to break down those fears, to propel you out into mission where God has called you. This is a chapter of the Bible that I want to live in because I feel it so much in myself. I invite you to live in it with me so that we together will be faithfully, trustingly participating in the gospel mission of our Lord Jesus. Will you just pray with me here in closing?